Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Ari Ariel, the host of the channel. And today we'll be talking to Hasia Diner about her new book, Roads Taken, The Great Jewish Migrations to the New World and the Peddlers Who Forged the Way. Professor Diner is the professor of Hebrew and Judaic Studies and History at New York University and also the Paul S. and Sylvia Steinberg Professor of American Jewish History. Hasia, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Um, I wonder if we could begin by you telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I um, teach uh, American Jewish history um, at New York University, and um, I do so as a Jewish historian and as an American historian, and so the two are um, completely uh, tied up together. I have, uh, until this book, written um, almost exclusively in American history, although not exclusively in Jewish history. And so I've always sort of challenged myself as a Jewish, an American Jewish historian to think about other aspects of American history, uh, particularly American immigration and ethnic history. And so I did a book on um, Irish immigrant women in the 19th century. And I did another book on um, looking at three immigrant groups, uh, Irish, Italians, and East European Jews in the context of foodways. And uh, so it was always in this American context. And for this book, uh, Roads Taken, I decided to stretch myself in another direction and to think about um, the uh, Jewish migration to the United States in the context of the larger worldwide Jewish migration. Uh, So I see myself as an Americanist, as a Jewish historian, uh, and um, I see this reflects uh, my own kind of intellectual um, restlessness, and uh, I always, wherever, whatever direction I'm going in, I kind of want to look in a slightly different uh, uh, perspective about it. And um, uh, so, um, I think over the course of my career, I've gotten a chance to do lots of different projects. And so, this is the first book that's really international in scope. That must have had some challenges to it. 
Yes, because it was uh, challenging first and foremost because I didn't know all these other histories, and so I really had to um, uh, teach myself about, uh, uh, you know, in a way, two different kinds of um, zones. And one is I had to figure out why this Jewish migration took place, and so I had to become pretty comfortable, pretty familiar with um, Jewish history. Uh, not just in uh, Europe, but also the Ottoman Empire and North Africa, in that um, uh, these Jewish peddlers were coming from those places uh, as well. And while their numbers may not have been as great, they were still part of the great Jewish migration, and they were peddling as well. So I had to learn that. But then um, the uh, these peddlers, uh, these young men, went to not just the United States, although it was certainly the most uh, popular destination and it was the one that about 85% uh, went to, uh, but they were also going to South Africa, to Canada, to the Caribbean, to Central America, to South America, to um, what I don't seem to be um, New World um, destinations, but they were for the Jews, which is namely um, the British Isles, um, uh, England, Scotland, Ireland, uh, Wales, um, as well as Sweden. And so I didn't know these. I, mean, I guess I knew the Irish. Uh, but other than that, these were all brand new for me. And so it was one of the things I really loved about the project was just uh, sort of plunging into the histories of these places in this era in which the uh, Jewish migration was taking place, and particularly thinking about uh, the kinds of um, people to whom the peddlers, the Jewish peddlers sold, uh, the kinds of people whom they would have met along the way, which is the title of one of the chapters, and um, uh, people along the road, and um, uh, try to figure out what would have been the uh, local circumstances which would have uh, made it possible for um, these immigrant Jews to be successful, and most of them were relatively successful, uh, to be successful um, in this very intimate kind of um, selling. So maybe for our listeners who aren't familiar with this, could you give us a little background on the Great Jewish Migration? Okay, so uh, between the end of the 18th century uh, into the 19th, in, into the um, early 20th, although uh, one could actually say that it went on beyond uh, the uh, early, um, you know, beyond the 1920s, uh, about um, three and a half, four million Jews um, crossed um, some national boundary and uh, set off to build. Uh, new homes for themselves someplace other than the places where they had um, uh, grown up and where their families lived. Now, there were um, a much larger number of Jews moved within their home regions or home countries or home empires um, from um, backwater provincial areas to the big cities. Yeah, that was an enormous migration, but I'm really not looking at them. And um, some number of these Jews also went uh, from um, uh, basically Eastern Europe to Western Europe, so Polish Jews going to France okay, or Russian Jews going to Germany. And I'm really not looking at them either uh, in as much as they went to places that knew Jews very well. I mean, these are places that had had resident Jewish populations for 
centuries. So I'm looking at those uh, people. And again, this was the, uh, the enormous. We're talking again about four million uh, Jews who um, crossed a national boundary and went to uh, places where Jews had not lived before or where the Jewish communities were relatively uh, new and in process of uh, formation. Uh, most of these involved um, uh, some kind of ocean voyage, although Polish, Lithuanian Jews going to Sweden did not. Uh, cross a, an ocean, uh, but uh, they still went um, uh, to a place where uh, nearly no Jews had ever lived before. So the migration uh, followed, uh, we could say, two um, large arcs. And on the one hand, it followed uh, European colonization. So Jews going to North America, Central America, South America, the Caribbean, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, um, followed uh, on the heels of um, the uh, European expansion um, through colonialism into you know what is you know historically or conventionally referred to as the new world um, but um, the uh, colonialism wasn't the only part of it and so the other arc is that these Jews followed um, the uh, spread of um, uh, capitalism and so um, Regions of um, uh, Europe, places like Ireland, Sweden, Scotland, so on, as they uh, become more and more caught up, as these are regions that were previously relatively untouched by capitalism, where most people lived in relatively subsistence economies, um, and um, in which um, they had uh, lived with very low levels of material consumption uh, with the spread of capitalism in the um, from the middle of the 19th century onward uh, people began to have some cash some coins jingling in their pockets and um, the uh, peddler made possible um, them finding something to spend it on um, another part of this which again shows how global this was Places like uh, the British Isles, Sweden, um, even uh, Quebec, which is obviously a legacy of um, French colonialism. But uh, from those places, again, Scandinavia, British Isles, um, Quebec, um, as lots and lots of their own young people began to emigrate, okay, mostly to the United States, um, people back home experienced a rise in their status of living, in, in, in their material or their, their um, economic conditions. Um, family members who had gone abroad were sending back remittances, and so that families in the Irish countryside or in um, parts of Sweden, parts of you know, in, in, in rural um, uh, Quebec, uh, were getting money from their uh, family members who had gone off to work in pot, cotton mills in, in New England or on farms in the American uh, Midwest. And so that money that was sent uh, from uh, migrating uh, relatives um, now became, transformed the societies in which they lived. So this very long answer that this um, great Jewish migration took place uh, in uh, the uh, context of uh, uh, these uh, kind of uh, major uh, global uh, forces.
Um, and it sounds actually like you're making an argument against the, the tendency to see Jewish migration as the result of persecution to some extent. Is that right? Yes, I'd say uh, complete, uh, completely right. And I think, you know, <laughs> Jewish historians and Jewish communal rhetoric um, has uh, way overstated the degree to which um, persecution was um, the engine that drove the migrations. And, um, you know, we can. We can think about this, for example, in the um, context of the um, uh, history, you know, which is the largest of all of these migrations, which is the great East European Jewish migration from um, parts of the, from basically the, the Tsarist Empire. And that migration is always described consistently as a response to the pogroms, which seem to be dated in the, by historians, always dated to 1881. And, um, you know, it, taking no account of, you know, first, that there were pogroms long before 1881. Uh, secondly, that uh, people left, uh, Jews left parts of the uh, Russian Empire where there were no pogroms, like Lithuania. And Lithuania was one of the largest senders of um, immigrants, certainly until the um, first decade of the 20th century, uh, there were no pogroms in Lithuania, and um, Jews from places like Lithuania and other impoverished areas of the Russian Empire moved, in fact, to the Ukraine and Moldavia, um, which is where the pogroms took place. So, you know, in a sense, pogroms were not the uh, the catalyst, and while they were brutal and uh, shocking and um, certainly had to cause Jews to question their status and their their future in Russian society or this in the society of their empire, um, it can't be seen as the uh, the, the great um, uh, catalytic force. And so it seems like a, a very large proportion of these migrants ended up as peddlers. Um, do you have some? Is there any way to, to quantify that? Or yeah, um, so there's no. Way and why? And why peddling is really the the more important question. Okay. Perhaps. Why do so many of them take part in peddling? Right. So I mean, can't quantify at all, and uh, you're really um, <clears throat> dependent on sporadic evidence here and there, and um, you know some of it is pretty good in that. Uh, um, local Jewish communities uh, in the New World, New World places, I uh, kept surveys of one in kind or tried to count how many are we and what are we doing. And so you get a certain amount of, of, of uh, a certain set of numbers that come out of that. Uh, but, you know, they're not particularly reliable. Um, but um, uh, the bad numbers um, aggregated from all over the world make it very clear that it was the, there were times when it was the, and places where it was the most common occupation and other times it was just a very important occupation. So why? Well, it wasn't disconnected from um, the Jewish involvement in commerce before migration. It was, it was not an unknown way of making a living. Some parts of the world, um, of the old world, the Jews' old world um, saw Jews peddling there. So Jews in Alsace peddled um, back home. They pedal in Louisiana and uh, uh, Arkansas and um, uh, Georgia. Um, Bavarian Jews peddled, uh, and so they peddled in Bavaria and they peddled then in um, 
know, Wisconsin and Illinois and, and so on. So uh, same with Jews from uh, Bohemia, Moravia, uh, Lithuania. That, so this was familiar. But I think more important, uh, <clears throat> peddling as an occupation uh, was probably the fastest and surest route to um, the, the learning or to acquiring the kinds of skills that would, one would need in the new society, language, um, exposure to the local um, uh, culture, and um, it was also the surest, fastest way to make a, you know, to 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 fulfill the goals of the uh, migration, which in the end was earning enough money, saving enough money uh, to be able to get on with life and to um, have a family and uh, <clears throat> and and become um, a, a merchant of one kind or another. And in terms of logistics, how did peddling work? So somebody would arrive in a new place and, and could they immediately become a peddler? How'd they get started? Yes, that's a great question. So when they would, now they didn't just randomly go to new places. They went to places where they had some contact, some family member, um, information about somebody from their town uh, who had gone there first and had gotten started. Uh, we never know who the very first was, and so we can't ask that question. Uh, but people didn't, uh, Jews like all other migrants, just didn't, didn't just uh, ramble uh, randomly, but they very much uh, 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 focused on particular destinations where there were there were where they had connections and so they show up um and there's a brother there an uncle a cousin a townsperson a friend of a friend of a friend and um those individuals uh were uh there were some of those individuals who were already involved in some kind of retail establishment uh particularly uh what became the sort of Jews metier was dry goods Okay, and uh, you know, fabric, uh, needles, buttons, thread, uh, cutlery, uh, eyeglasses, watches, jewelry, uh, lace, ribbons, uh, uh, all that kind of um, uh, stuff, and um, that. Um, Person, you know, again, the townsperson, the cousin, the uncle, the aunt, uh, who who was there would outfit the peddler with his first bundle of goods, give him a route, okay, and every peddler had his own special route, and he was not really allowed to deviate and to encroach on somebody else's route, okay, uh, and um, he would set off um, uh, on Sunday. Um, to get to his uh, kingdom, and they would use the word Hebrew, the Hebrew word uh, Medina, their 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 state, um, and um, they had a list of customers. Even though they could certainly acquire new customers on the route, um, but um, they um, since they stole, sold on the installment plan, um, they would um, go to the same houses Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, um, and. Um, collect what was owed to them from the previous week. And uh, then in, in, in the process, um, hopefully get the uh, customer to want to buy something um, else, which would then extend the amount of time that that customer was uh, uh, in debt, in, indebted to them and uh, through which um, the peddler could um, 
and make uh, make his living, make his um, small profit, you know, really a hair's breadth kind of uh, margin for, for the uh, of profit. Uh, and then um, every place these new world peddlers went, um, they would on the weekend return to the cousin, the brother, the uncle, the friend, the friend of the friend, whoever it was who was their wholesaler, who already was living in some kind of settled uh, community, the peddler would come back to that person. Uh, the peddler would spend the weekend uh, Sabbath with in some kind of um, Jewish environment because there were going to always be a number of peddlers all um, clustered. Um, and then um, Saturday night, uh, basically around the, uh, the New World, uh, the peddlers would um, repay their creditors. Okay? This is what I, you know, I took so much and so much goods for you. Here's what I owe you. Uh, and then the peddler would replenish his pack and then um, get back out on the road again. So they had this, the, the logistics, the mechanics of it were that um, uh, they had a weekly circuit. And um, in Ireland, they were actually called weekly men. And mm-hmm. in parts of South America, they were known as semananics. Okay. Mana being the Spanish word for week, and wachers uh, um, uh, in um, some places in England. Um, uh, so again, showing that, that that weekly circuit. So within the the network of peddlers, it sounds like that whole network was a Jewish economic network. And then were the customers all non-Jews? Yes. So the, you know, from the top to the bottom of the selling chain, it was Jews. You know, Jewish peddlers got their goods from Jewish shopkeepers who got theirs from Jewish wholesalers who got theirs from Jewish uh, peddler supply companies who uh, got those from larger supply companies uh, who got actually a good deal from Jewish manufacturers. Okay, And so the goods flowed that way and the credit flowed that way, uh, but uh, the customers were all non-Jews. And so so uh, uh, they uh, were the only uh, non-Jews in this entire um, kind of vertical chain. Could you talk a little bit about then the interaction between the Jewish peddlers and their non-Jewish customers? Yes. So, uh, you know, it would seem like it would be a really fraught situation and one that could lead to just a lot of uh, unpleasantness. And um, certainly there were some people who didn't want any peddler to come to their house and would not answer the knock on the door or slam the door in their face. Um, But in the main, from um, the uh, testimony of um, peddlers and the testimony of their customers, from other more, um, shall we say, neutral type sources, um, it seems as though the the customers were really happy to buy from the peddlers. Um, For farm families, it may have relieved the... um, uh, loneliness. Uh, by the way, I should say uh, before going on and go on any further, um, the um, customers were all women. Okay, so they mm, sold. Okay. I think they sold goods that uh, would have been of interest to, to women. Okay, uh, again, buttons, lace, mirrors, pictures, and picture frames for the wall, tablecloths, towels, sheets, pillowcases. Um, so these were very much home-related um, items, and. Um, so the women may have finally been in farm families, uh, isolated one from the other, very, very um, excited about having uh, this uh, person come across their threshold and 
relieve the uh, um, the loneliness. Um, for many of the customers, um, it was the only way to get material goods, and um, you know they came to aspire to a higher standard of material consumption. And um, they would say, you know, why should I um, sleep on a pallet on the floor when I can have um, a sheet, you know, sheets and blankets and pillowcases on, on a mattress? Or why can't I uh, have a rug on my floor or pictures on my wall so that uh, or wear glasses? I can see now. Um, so that uh, the customers were very happy. These women were very happy to have access to these um Goods um, for some of the women, uh, it was um, uh, a way to avoid shopping at the um, at the store owned by the plantation owners or by the um, uh, the you know the mine owners, the infamous uh, company store. Uh, so the peddler comes and in, into the house, and he has no relationship to the planter. Uh, he has no relationship to the um, mine owner. And um, he could sell goods at a much lower price, at a lower rate of interest. Um, for um, African-American women, uh, the peddlers were really very important because these were women who, if they went into town to a store, besides the indignity that they would face having to, for example, get off the sidewalk when a white person walks by, which, you know, is pretty graphic, that they would um, not be able, in a store, they couldn't try on clothes, they couldn't... Um, touch the merchandise to see how the fabric felt or maybe take a, um, a necklace out of the case and hold it up to their, um, uh, you know, to, to, to their bodies and see how it may have looked. Uh, the peddler is perfectly happy. The peddler uh, comes into their house and he treats them uh, like he would any other customer because like any other customer, they have uh, money to spend um, on these um inexpensive uh, but yet luxury items. So for African-American women in the South, um, to have the peddler come was, um, uh, in a way, a, a, a route or, or a means of avoiding the uh, shame and the anger and the humiliation that uh, took place in town. Um, and uh, so they, they generally talk about having very positive interactions uh, with the um, w with the customers, uh, there's one wonderful story where um, from the South, um, where a peddler knocks on the door, a woman, uh, Georgia it was, and she you know opens the door and she looks at him and she says, I don't let Yankees into my house. He said, I'm not a Yankee, I'm a Jew. He said, Oh, then you can come in. Um, <laughs> so uh, you know we obviously have to um, uh, take these with a certain uh, grain of salt. Um, uh, but um, I think that I'm, I'm, I'm feeling that, you know, I, I assess them as reasonably accurate. Um, one way we know that they had pretty good relationships um, is that whenever there was political turmoil, usually launched by merchants, you know, local merchants against the peddlers, the female customers stuck with their with the with the peddlers. They liked the peddlers, and um, there were all over the world um, uh, uh, cases where peddlers were murdered. They, now they were they were not murdered because they were Jews, but they were murdered because they were um, uh, unarmed men on the road with money and goods. So they're pretty easy um, target for um, uh, uh, ruffians, and um, so when uh, these when when there were peddler murders. 
What was really striking is running the society as a whole marshaled its resources to apprehend the criminal, you know, the, 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 the guilty party, to bring them to justice, to try them, um, to punish them. And in the inquest, you know, the local people came up and said, you know, that this peddler was, you know, he was a really nice person. We've known him for two years. Um, and they would point the finger at some of their, you know, neighbors. You know, it was the sons of so-and-so who uh, um, did it. And so that um, they didn't view the uh, Jewish immigrant peddler as somebody who was outside of, uh, shall we say, their moral universe. And uh, and it's and, funny because there there could be this tendency to imagine peddling as a, an old-fashioned, old-world profession, but it actually sounds like the peddlers used peddling to incorporate themselves into a new society, but also that they were really agents of change and, and modernization in their destination places. Absolutely. And so there's a wonderful memoir by um, uh, an individual um, who was eventually the uh, president of Columbia, South America. And he says, you know, in our town, um, no, no peasant ever owned a pair of shoes until uh, the peddlers came, until the Jewish peddlers huh. came. And um, in uh, perhaps less... Uh, direct kind of testimony, um, we, you know, get the sense that, you know, for these um, customers, this is their first access to these kinds of goods. And these are goods that we would certainly consider necessities, sheets and pillowcases, okay, towels. Okay, but for them, these were relatively new items. Um, I was very struck by reading how Jewish uh, peddlers in um, Cuba and Jamaica and, uh, you know, other parts of the Caribbean sold um, uh, neckties and um, suspenders and cloth handkerchiefs to the, um, you know, they sell them to the wives of uh, plantation workers. And so, I mean, here are people who lived, you know, probably in the lowest level of, um, you know, lowest material level, probably the greatest possibility of exploitation in, in, in their society. And they're saying, look, my husband deserves the right to wear a necktie. Certainly nothing um, you need. I think the the relationship between the customers and the peddlers is, we we can understand even more about how that went in that um, the customers um, slept in the homes of, um, the the peddlers slept in the homes of their customers. So at the end of the day, uh, no, not always, and sometimes they were forced to sleep, you know, in the way, in on the ground and a wagon in a barn and in an empty field in a forest. But um, for the, in the most part, um, you know, they would ask, you know, customer, uh, the last customer of the day, uh, may I lodge here for the night? And since they had this weekly circuit, they knew the people and um, they worked it out that the last home of the day was the person who was kind of, you know, the one that they had the nicest relationship with. And so they... Um, uh, you know, slept in their homes, they would uh, eat at their tables, um, they um, had uh, opportunity or the challenge, however you want to think of it, as of um, having conversations uh, with, with, with their customers of, became a great way to learn the language. Okay, I mean, so here they are spending the night in a family that speaks Spanish, French, Swedish, uh, whatever, um, uh, and uh, you know they have to learn how to communicate. Uh, um, and so, in some of the peddler memoirs, they said, um, "I agreed um, 
to give them an extra item and um, they would teach me English or French. Or, so um, uh, that, you know, if, if the um, uh, customers despise them and they wouldn't be letting them sleep in their homes, okay, right. and bringing them in a sense into the family circle. So with all of this intimate interaction then, uh, there must have been conversations about religion and about relationships. Uh, I mean, even eating, I suppose, would have been problematic for Jewish peddlers in non-Jewish houses. So th- did, they, did they have to negotiate that somehow? Absolutely. And so that um, I see as one of the most um, illuminating parts of the story um, is that, um, uh, I mean, their, since their customers were all non-Jews, and basically they're all Christians, um, so that um, uh, you know the peddler is confronted with a series of um, uh, moments in time uh, or within this one evening that they're sleeping there where the issue of religion comes up and certainly food is first and so the uh, uh, the wife of the family the his his, his main customer they say well would you like to eat here and the, the peddlers have to decide am I going to eat it or not it's obviously not kosher and um okay maybe i should maybe i shouldn't and there's no one they had no one response and different people responded um uh differently uh but um uh in many cases they would say you know i can't eat that and the housewife would ask the most obvious question which is why not i mean who is there who doesn't eat you know bacon or ham or pork chops or uh, whatever, and um, so well, my religion forbids it, which then leads to the next obvious question. Well, what religion is it that doesn't let you eat uh, uh, ham hocks um, or uh, you know lard? And so I'm a Jew, and um, Jewish religion um, says that uh, you know we may not eat this food. And rather than have that be a, a matter of controversy or insult, what you're not going to eat my food? or what, you're a Jew, they'd say, okay, well, what can you eat? And so sometimes peddlers would leave uh, pot um, at the home of, um, uh, you know, each one of those homes, and they would cook themselves, or the um, housewife would, um, uh, you know, prepare something that they could eat. Um, other times, so the peddler would just say, look, I'm just going to eat whatever is, is given to me. Um, but there were other religious conversations that took place as well. <clears throat> Sometimes the um, family would ask, well, what does it mean that you're a Jew? What, wh- who are the Jews? What do they believe? Uh, in um, law, quite a few narratives from uh, particularly South Africa among the um, Afrikaner, who were uh, great readers of the Old uh, Testament of the Hebrew Bible, um, where and the fa- uh, family would read the Bible together at night. Uh, and um, one amazing memoir, um, he said that the the uh, boar, the Afrikaner farmer, would say, "Since you're one of the chosen people, would you read the Bible for us and tell us uh, what you know how you uh, you know what it means to you?" Um, peddlers in their memoirs and customers in their memoirs talked about seeing the Jewish peddler, the male, uh, they're all men, uh, praying in the morning and um, putting on his prayer shawl, putting on, uh, you know, the leather uh, tefillin, um, uh, um, uh, on uh, their, um, you know, on their foreheads and on their, um, uh, around their arms. What what is this? And so um, this, too became a kind of moment in uh, time in which the uh, 
peddlers and the um, uh, uh, customers uh, met over the issue of uh, religion. There's a really remarkable story in Chapter 3 about a, a peddler named uh, nicknamed Holy Moses. Yes. Could you maybe speak about that? Yes. So um, Holy Moses, um, he was peddling in the Dakotas, a Jewish man from uh, Lithuania. And he um, had, you know, his, his clients, they all knew him. They knew he was very religious. Uh, and um, at one point, um, he was... Uh, 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 approached by several of the customers, and the customers were primarily German speakers, uh, immigrants from Germany to as farmers to the Dakotas, and they approached him and they said, um, "We uh, we are, uh, we don't have a minister, and we wonder if you would come and uh, lead services in our congregation." And um, so this is a story told by his daughter. And again, we'll have to assume there's a certain amount of embellishment um, uh, um, over this. And um, he um, goes for several weeks, several months to um, this uh, a German congregation. And he uh, um, led them in a discussion of the Torah portion of the week. And um, so, uh, uh, you know, one can pop ponder this and um, uh, and ask you know the question um, do, you know if he had not left uh, Lithuania as a peddler and if they had not left Lithuania uh, or of Germany to go become farmers in America uh, and um, uh, you know would either have ever met the other? And, uh, you know, we see the kind of transformative uh, uh, impact of, uh, one might say, the new world itself and the peddling as the uh, vehicle that brought uh, these people together. Yeah, it seems like there's a real synergy or maybe even symbiosis between the Jewish peddlers and their non-Jewish customers. Um, and, and given maybe that they were in their houses so often, were there ever... Uh, romantic relationships that developed? Absolutely. And so all over the world, um, uh, we have um, stories of peddlers and uh, women um, uh, falling in love, uh, getting uh, married. In some cases, the women uh, convert to Judaism. Um, uh, in other cases, uh, the men end up in uh, just lifelong relationships uh, with uh, the uh, uh, women uh, whom they've met in the course of their um, uh, study, their, their travels, um, you know, they're selling um, expeditions. Um, there is a, a wonderful um, comment by a uh, man who's an, who's an official of the Alliance um, Israelite Universelle. So this was a French Jewish organization heavily situated in the Ottoman Empire, and he went to the Amazon to check up on uh, the uh, young men from the particular area he had worked in uh, who had gone off to be peddlers in the Amazon. And he said they spread their children all up and down the banks of the Amazon. And he says and he was in a boat. And he said the little boy who was uh, uh, manning the, the boat or the raft and said his name was Solomon. And he said, well, why do you have the name Solomon? He said, oh, my father's a Jew. And... Uh, the, um, uh, these relationships were, you know, in a way, natural and normal. I mean, these were single men on their own, and um, they met, they fell in love, and um, uh, again, it has a tra transformative impact on um, on the Jews and on the places they went. 
So it sounds like most of the relationships are very positive, but of course there is also some opposition to the peddlers. Does that mostly come from from other business interests or local stores, or who's who's against the peddlers peddling in their areas? Yeah, so the pe- the opposition to the peddlers come primarily uh, from uh, the um, uh, merchants who just see the peddlers as unfair competition, and they want uh, they want them out. Um, in some places, it's just a clear, uncomplicated economic uh, tension uh, without the religious or the ethnic or the national or whatever we want to call it, without the Jewish issue coming in. And um, partly we know this because there was opposition to other peddlers who weren't Jewish um, as well. And so um, there's the same kind of rhetoric and the same kind of political maneuvering against the so-called Yankee, not so-called, against the Yankee peddlers. That is, those are young men from uh, uh, New England um, who went peddling in the South and in the Midwest, Mid-Atlantic. And the same kinds of words are used, were used against them as were used against the Jewish peddlers. Uh, but on the other hand, in a few places, it happened in Ireland, it happened in Quebec, it happened in a few spots in Latin America, um, uh, those places in particular, um, anti-peddler rhetoric sparked over into anti-Jewish rhetoric, which doesn't mean that the, that the customers agreed with it, but local, political, religious, businessmen came together and constructed a uh, an argument against the peddlers, which were not just that they were unfair competition, uh, but that there that they were um, uh, as Jews, alien um, to this environment and were corrupting the uh, values uh, that they were uh, the killers of Jesus. They were the uh, parasites who uh, uh, fed upon the poor and, and so on. Um, but those were actually quite limited. And if you took the whole history, one might say, of anti-peddler rhetoric and anti-peddler political activity, um, the uh, ones where the Jewish element crept into or flared into the um, um, arguments, um, it's uh, pretty limited. It also sounds like the peddlers are upsetting racial and gender norms. So I would imagine that also led to some opposition. Yes. Is that right? Yes. And so, the, you know, in many places in the American South, for example, there's just a kind of fear that wherever the peddlers went, they were going to, uh, because they're selling um, material goods to African-Americans, uh, material goods um, that um, uh, in a way were at least on the surface in terms of, you know, uh, erasing some of the differences between being the privilege of being white and the uh, degradation of being not white. And so if uh, if, uh, an African-American can have the same household furnishings and the same uh, necktie and the same um, jewelry, then um, what's, uh, you know, it's it's, it's erasing some of the the, um, sting of race, as it were, or the privileges of race. Uh, And so Jewish peddlers were often um, uh, described as uh, riling up um, the uh, local uh, um, African Americans because of their um, uh, the disruptive quality of the um, of the selling. Um, uh, in many places, the uh, owners of the mines didn't like the idea that the peddlers were coming in and taking people away from the company store, and that's you know disruptive of class relationships. Uh, and the issue of gender is that was kind of universal, and there was always. Sly, snide, 
slightly humorous, sometimes not so humorous, uh, notion that peddlers were seducing women uh, and that they were kind of sexual predators. Um, but I think we can um, see that as, again, more limited than the, than the uh, positive interactions in as much as the peddlers, um, all, almost, almost all of whom, in fact, I could say, I, I think it's all of whom uh, end up um, not being peddlers but becoming shopkeepers. And when they open their shops in the local area, they are um, uh, considered to be uh, respectable, upright uh, citizens of a local community. People patronize their businesses. Um, they um, ha- occupy um, positions of respect, they might serve on a school board or on a um, road commission or uh, a, a kind of local board of trade, uh, you know, would, whatever um, local honors were available, they would uh, be able to um, uh, uh, acquire these. And so it shows that they, re- they garnered the respect of their neighbors for the people to whom they'd sold. So it sounds like then peddling is a, a temporary profession. Could you say a little bit about maybe how long one usually peddled? And, and I assume then that they were they stopped peddling because they were looking for better conditions with a more sedentary lifestyle? Okay, so, I mean, nobody peddled because they wanted to. It was definitely not a kind of choice <laughs> occupation. Um, but they peddled because they saw it as the road to uh, uh, some kind of uh, stability, some kind of um, uh, greater eco- you know, comfort, economic uh, viability. Um, so um, it was not a lifetime occupation. It's really hard to know how long um, this was... Uh, um, you know, if somebody did it a year, two years, four years, three years, since we can't calculate the number of people who actually peddled or the number of men who peddled, we can therefore not really calculate the um, uh, the average, uh, an average number that uh, peddling went on. I'd say that, uh, you know, I got a lot of information from um, uh, uh, sources like um, obituaries. And, um, you know, it seemed to be, you know, two, three years um, was, Probably a, 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 a kind of norm. And and while they were peddling, it sounds like they were single men. But once they settled down, did they incorporate into uh, into Jewish communities or other communities? And does that mean they also had the opportunity to get married and have children and things of that nature? Yes. Yeah, so some of the you know, particularly in the earlier period, the um, uh, peddlers were single men. And then once they could open a shop, was when they got married, and they had a variety of strategies to find a wife. Um, and um, uh, the l- later on, by I think particularly as the uh, focus of the source of the migration uh, shifted uh, to further in Eastern Europe as opposed to uh, 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 Central Europe, uh, they tended to be as much, and, and also in the Ottoman Empire, they tended to be uh, much more married men um, who... Um, uh, would leave their wives and children back home and uh, then would send for them when, um, the, um, uh, you know, when they had saved the money. Um, or they may have brought them to the immigration, you know, to the destination country, but leave them in a big city. They leave them in New York City and then the men might go out and peddle in the Adirondacks or in um, uh, you know, some other 
more remote area, uh, see them once or twice a year, you know, maybe during Jewish holidays. There's almost a, a, a kind of uh, a organic link between peddling and being on their own, stopping to peddle and uh, reforming a family, uh, be it an existing one or getting married, uh, becoming part of a Jewish community. Now, there were certainly any number of examples I ran across of men who were peddlers, got married, opened a store, and then actually continued to do, continued to do some peddling and their wives ran the store. Hmm. So that, uh, and, and that would often come to an end when they would have a child. And then it was now a kind of full family. And, and some of these ex-peddlers become quite prominent, right? Am, am I right that, for example, Sears was started by an ex-peddler? Uh, Sears, um, Julius Rosenwald, who's the uh, president of Sears, um, uh, his father was a peddler. So he's one generation removed. Uh, but uh, I think some of the big names that we associate with um, uh, you know, peddlers who really made it uh, big were Guggenheim. Meyer Guggenheim, the, the Le Lehman, uh, Strauss, uh, um, Seligman. Uh, so these were uh, people who became extremely, extremely uh, uh, wealthy and prominent and um, all began um, as peddlers in America. Um, the um, uh, uh, man um, founded um, the very fancy department store in San Francisco, I. Magnin. Um, he was a married man in San Francisco. Jewish immigrant, and he um, uh, uh, was a picture frame maker and kind of a failure at it. And um, so his wife says, look at, you know, you're a failure. <laughs> um, probably the only way you're going to make something of yourself is if you go out and pedal. And so um, he then goes pedals and um, saves the money, you know, makes the money, saves it, and, uh, you know, ends up founding um, this, you know, very classy department store. And did peddling ever pass down to the second generation, or, or like in this case of Sears, is it something that the, the first generation does so that their children have a, a better life? Yes, um, so definitely it's, a, it's, it's less than a one-generation uh, phenomenon, and um, uh, the uh, um, uh, uh, sons never do it again. The sons never pick up their fathers. Uh, okay. Great. Thanks, Hasia. I think we've taken up too much of your time. Um, I'm pleasure. just kind of curious, now that this this project is done, and it, it's an awesome book, everybody should go out and, and get it. Um, I'm curious what you're working on now. Okay, so in a way, it's not unrelated to your last question, which is I'm writing um, a short biography of um, Julius Rosenwald uh, of Sears, um, who, uh, whose father was a peddler. And this is for the um, Jewish Lives series at Yale University Press. Great. That sounds like a great project. I look forward to reading it. Thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. And take care. Okay, doke. Thanks so much. Hey, 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.